Acts 20, Acts 20. And I'll read several verses there. Biting off quite a bit, we're going to cover or try to cover the whole chapter. And pray for the Spirit's guidance. So, Lord and our God, as we open your book of life, I pray that we, we learn from the early church, that we learn from Paul's life what, it, what is expected of us, O Heavenly Father. I pray that you give us the nuggets of truth that your Holy Spirit would have us to take away from this text. I pray that you help me to represent you properly. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions, he had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. There he spent three months and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to sail, set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sobatar the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. You may be seated. I say we will be covering the whole chapter. The title of it, as I put, as Passing the Torch. Because as we look at this, that is exactly what Paul is doing here. You know, I think it was last time I preached the time before, how I told you how important it is that we look cross-generationally, that our time is short here, that we have to look for the next generation to carry on the kingdom of God, the church. And that has to be a priority in our lives. And this is what Paul is doing here. He is preparing these young churches for when he departs. And like us, we all will depart. We all will leave this earth. I believe that Jesus will not return for quite a while. Most of us will see death. And it is our duty not only to prepare our church in the passing of the torch for people to teach biblically sound messages, but we also must prepare our children and our children's children. It's our responsibility. That our days are limited. There will come a time when we will leave this earth. Unfortunately, many people don't like to talk about that, but we have to. It's part of life. And I would encourage parents to tell their children, I'm not always going to be there. It's part of life. 
And we should prepare, just as Paul is preparing the churches here. And it's a burden for him. You know, Paul's going about doing his business. You know, there was the riot and he left that. But now he's going and he's, he's discipling, maturing these churches, the leaders of these churches that he started or others started in these areas. Because he's an experienced church leader. He's experienced in the faith. And he's going about giving the final lessons to these churches. He knows he will not be returning to these places. And Paul goes and he goes with discipline. He wants to keep these churches in check. He knows, just as our Lord said, ravenous wolves will come in and try to destroy the church. There are enemies of the church. And we're going to jump ahead here. Verse 29 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Saints, the church has always been, always will be under attack. Fierce wolves from the outside are a real and a present danger to the church at all times. There will always be enemies of the church. We see that today. We hear the, the pro-abortes, those who love death, screaming and railing against the Christian religion, the churches that stand against abortion. I'm encouraged by that. I'm very encouraged. It means the church is at least in the fight. When you get your enemies howling at you, squealing foul, we want to keep killing our children. We want to keep promoting homosex. When they start howling, cursing, and swearing at the church, praise God. Luther said, when the truth is preached, the dogs will bark. He said, let them bark. The church will always have its enemies. And when they start barking and squealing, they are doing it because the church is doing its job. It's trying to reclaim the culture. It's going back. It's fighting back. Saying this is sin. Let's get rid of it. It's good that the evil are squealing and crying foul. And many times they're blaming the churches. Attacking the churches. Attacking pro-life groups. They say they're for choice, but if a woman chooses to keep her baby, they want to burn a building down. 
It shows the hypocrisy, therefore death. Anytime people stray away from God, the innocent are sacrificed to Molech. It's no different than in the Old Testament. Let them bark. And I hope they bark louder and louder because it means we're doing our job. When people curse you or hate you, praise God, you're standing up for Christ. You know, these ravenous attacks from the outside can do great harm to the church. They can. When they get the upper hand, we've seen it throughout history, they will kill Christians. They will imprison Christians. They can do great harm. However, there is a greater harm that threatens the church. We see that in verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Saints, this is a far greater threat to the church of Jesus Christ. Heresies, false teachings forming within the body of the church. It weakens the church. It disables the church when they start falling into these false teachings and if these false teachings go unchecked. Our Lord will bring discipline to the church. Paul said it was with a heavy heart that he, did, he had to discipline people. But he did discipline them. These false teachings that come into the church, it usually comes in because the church does not discipline. They do not stand up. They do not cry foul. We see it in our own denomination. Same-sex partners in authority. For years now, they use COVID as an excuse. That's no excuse. It should have been dealt with. Now we have one church in our synod who do not preach the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That is complete heresy. And it has gone unchecked, undisciplined. Saints, there's one thing I want you to remember and one thing I want you to remember from this message if you remember nothing else. If the church leaders of a denomination, if the church leaders of a church do not discipline, the head of the church will discipline. Jesus Christ will discipline the church. The church will not be able to go on undisciplined. And when God comes in and disciplines the church, it says that judgment starts first in the household of God. He will allow the ravenous wolves to come in and take their nips out of the flock. There will always be justice done in the church. It'll either be by godly men or it'll be by God himself. 
but the church will be disciplined. Now, as we look at our text, Paul has been going about fairly free in his movements. And again, he's moving about these newfound churches, these young churches. And he's pretty much instructing the elders and the deacons how to conduct these churches. He knows he's not going to be there. He's been involved in discipline. He's seen how men will try to use the gospel message to profit themselves. So he's passing all his experiences on to these young churches. He left when there was a riot. He wanted to go in. His friends convinced him not. Good friends at that time. Now in Greece, there's a plot to get him again, but he leaves. So is Paul really changing his tactics? You know, usually he hung around and stepped right into it and got beaten up and bloodied. No, he's not. He's following the the leading of the Holy Spirit. Paul has lost his courage. He's not changing his tactics. It's just that he's more and more in tune with the Holy Spirit, and he has more godly men around him, I think, that influence him and say, hey, Paul, sometimes it's better just to back off instead of getting kicked around. You know, if we look at verse... I've got to take my glasses off. 22, it says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. Here, saints, you know, Paul is not running from fear by not staying in these areas where there's plots against him. His obedience is where the Holy Spirit is leading him. You know, just like Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem, Paul knew the afflictions, the difficulties that were laid in store for him in Jerusalem. But he also knew that that is where the Holy Spirit was directing him, the path that God had laid out for him. And remember, even at his conversion it was said, He's a chosen vessel of mine. And I'm going to show him how much he'll have to suffer for me. And from now on, that path led him to Troas. Paul did never, never lost his courage. Actually, I believe he was bolder and bolder. It's just that he was more in tune to where the Holy Spirit wanted him to go. So let's look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. 
When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So here we see Paul, he's meeting with the Troas believers. And what we see in the text is that they were meeting on the first day of the week, Sunday, like we do. That's the first time it's mentioned in the scriptures. It was the tradition of the early church. It's mentioned more in the scriptures. That we meet on Sunday because it is the day that the Lord arose. And that's what they're doing here. But also they're meeting in the evening. So you have to understand consider, well, why are they meeting in the evening? Maybe several reasons for it. They may still be keeping the Sabbath. That'd be a Saturday. That may be their day off. Because the culture is in transition. It's not dominantly Christian. It's Jewish, pagan, and Christian. And if allowed, the Jews are still having a Sabbath. And some commentators feel that they weren't even allowed to have that. But if they were allowed and things were all shut down on Saturday with the Christians, many of them Jewish Christians, that was probably the day that they took off. So on Sunday, these guys, these people attending there, probably worked all day. They were forced to meet at night. In the evening, and I think this was a special service. This wasn't the normal length of all their services. I think this was because Paul is there. and He's going to be instructing at Troas, the elders and the deacons, and probably the deacons and elders from surrounding areas would come as well knowing that Paul was departing. And he was going to leave the following day. That this was their last opportunity to hear Paul speak and instruct. So I think we have to be a little sympathetic with this Eutychus when he fell asleep. Most likely he worked all day. They're on the third floor. There's candles going. It's nice and cozy, warm from the heat. Said many candles. He's by the window, and that, in those days, the windows went from floor to ceiling because that was the ventilation. They let the cool air in at night, opened up the windows. So he had a good spot. He was comfortable, had, probably had a nice little breeze coming in, and he dozed off, but he fell the wrong way, leaned the wrong way, and down he went three floors. And in the Greek, the original text, I mean, he was dead. There's no doubt he was dead. Paul brought him back to life. But Paul, you know, he didn't chastise him for falling asleep. You know, I wonder how many other ones fell asleep. They said that, you know, Paul continued to speak longer and longer up until daybreak. It'd be hard to stay awake. But Paul brought him back to life and went right back to business. Again, he was discipling these people all night. This was his final message to them. And many of them probably 
were asking questions which Paul was answering for the leaders of the church. But we do know Paul left his plans. We're going on ahead. This is starting in verse... I usually type in the numbers bigger and I didn't on this one. But going ahead to the ship, he set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And we met when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilena and sailed from there. We came and followed the opposite to Chaos. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So again, here Paul is. He's going to all these new churches. And I believe from the context, we can assume that he was given his final farewell and final instructions to each one of these new churches their elders, their deacons, and whatever saints would come to listen. We're told he sailed past Ephesus. Ephesus. I think this probably was a time issue because we know he wanted to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he went to Miletus, but you know, it could be that Miletus was maybe a centrally located spot where he could gather more elders and deacons Easily. He asked the Ephesian elders to meet him there. That was a 30-mile hike for these guys, about two or three days. Why Miletus? It doesn't explain why. We can only assume that Paul was trying to meet with as many people as he could in the most convenient place. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, these are his instructions when he's leaving. So what Paul is going to be telling us here is what is important. And that is what we must emphasize, what should be important to us. He tells us, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. This is very, very important. How we conduct our lives matter. How we continually conduct our lives matter. How we stay with the faith matters. The world is watching. Sinners are watching. People you witness to are watching. How genuine is this person? How committed are they to church attendance? Do they do what they are asking me to do if I come to faith? Do your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers know you're a Christian? They should. They better. They're watching you. It's important how we live our lives. It's important to the church our faithfulness, it's important to our family. It's important to those who reject us because if they see you living your Christian life, doing your duties joyfully, they notice and they wonder why they don't have that joy. And when they ask or if they ask, it's ours to tell them 
It's because we have Jesus Christ in our life and we live for him. Our lives do matter. You know yourselves. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Paul was consistent. And what were the people seeing? Verse 19, Serving in the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul was there for the saints, teaching them in public, teaching them from house to house. But notice what was profitable. It tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching us in all righteousness, in all matters of life. The Scriptures are sufficient for all things in life. And what was he teaching? Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't going around door to door saying, Jesus Christ loves you and has a good plan for you. He was telling them, repent. Repent and receive the grace of Jesus Christ. Change your life. Judgment is coming. A message that we must relay as well. He tells us as we continue on, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Boy, if you were given a message revealed to you from God about that, wouldn't you be happy about going? Let's say, it's say you're going to Madison to get beat up, thrown in jail. Similar to what the Holy Spirit is telling Paul. Your trials are not over. Your afflictions are not over. But we already covered that. Paul was faithful. He went. Later on, he tells Timothy, he said, I fought the good fight. That was shortly before he was killed. He saw it through to the end, just like we must. And why? He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is a mature Christian. He knows his life will come to an end, just like ours will. Sometimes unexpectedly. But we know when we get gray around the edges that it's only a matter of time before the ambulance is picking us up and hauling us away. But Paul realizes, he says, life is fleeting. He says it's the only value he has in his life is his life in Christ and representing his king. A great lesson for us as well. People must see our love for God in our lives. 
And even in trials and difficulties where people continue in the faith. I've worked with people who said they were Christians and they have trials and they've given up on Christianity. They said, God wouldn't allow me to go through this if he was real. They've given up. Were they really saved? Probably not. But it's when we're persistent, when we go through the trials of life, losing the spouses, losing loved ones, losing our health, where we keep praising God and relying on his promises. He tells us, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. You know, Paul knows he's on a fatal mission. He knows this is his last hurrah in Asia Minor and these areas. And he's sad. He loves these people, just like we should love brothers and sisters in the Lord. But again, he's doing what all good teachers should do and must do. He's preparing these churches to stand on their own two feet. Just like we must prepare our children to stand on their own two feet in this world. Our work, our work ethic is a testimony of our faith. How does Paul achieve this? He tells us, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now this verse can be misused. Some think we have to, everybody we meet, share the gospel with. That's not what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is that the people that God has brought into your sphere of influence, that you shared the whole counsel of God. That Paul taught that the scriptures are sufficient for all of life. And that's all you need. That's what this means. It's not that you come here on a Sunday morning and you hear the gospel message, period, and that's it. But you hear all of Scripture. That's why Purcell and I, we preach through the books of the Bible. Because it challenges us to learn what the Holy Spirit wants us to preach about. It's not just what we want to preach about, it's what the text dictates to us. It's a difficult task. We need your prayers because we need to educate ourselves so we can educate you. And then you educate your family and the people that you have a sphere of influence upon. Because it is important that we represent him properly in all matters of life. And that is for each and every believer, and that is a difficult task. That's why we must always be striving to mature. And we must be striving to bring up younger men who are mature in the faith to replace us when we leave. You know, we see so many churches 
without a pastor? I think there's seven in the class that's been quoted right now. And they can't even fill them with pulpit supply. Personally, I think it's a failed system. Taking young men out of seminary and say, here, you have no life experience, go teach these people who are much older than you, who have families and that. Good intent on the people going. But the plurality of elders, which Purcell pushes, to bring up people among the body to take our place to preach and to carry it into the next generation is a much better model, and I think a more biblical model. This is what Paul is doing here. Don't bring a stranger in to lead the flock. Have a member of the flock lead the flock. Someone who shows the potential, the zeal. And for you young men, you should be seeking what God wants you to do. When I was a young man, there's no way I thought I'd be preaching. But open yourself, your heart to God. Because that is how we advance God's kingdom in a smoother transition when pastors leave or retire. Someone familiar. Again, then Paul says, for the elders, for the deacons, and this is for all people, be careful, pay care or pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You know, we looked at these already, but we see the heart of Paul. He has a, a pastor's heart. He admonished everyone with tears. He was saddened when he had to do correction. He was saddened when he had to discipline time and time again so that people would get it straight, but he knew how important it was. Attacks will come from outside the church. Like I say, let the dogs bark. It's the attacks within the church that tears the church apart. And when the churches go so far, just like in the Old Testament, when God's people strayed so far, compromised so many things, he brought discipline upon them because they would not be disciplined themselves. But Paul knew where the church and the people of God have their strength. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Our strength, the church leader's strength, all our strengths come from God. 
Without God working in us, we would not understand the words of grace. We would not be built up. When the Bible says that the eyes are closed, or there are scales over their eyes, or they're open to follow vain imaginations, that's exactly what it means. They cannot, the lost cannot comprehend the words of God. They cannot understand the words of grace. He turns them over to delusion. To delusion. Our reliance is always on God. And it is only God who has changed us and continually changes us. And we can help that along by our prayers and the study of his word to mature as quickly as we can and to love him and to understand what he wants for our lives. And Paul goes on, and it, you know this is more of his life, of how he lived. I, conduct, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Again, our lives matter. We are called to be productive in this culture. The scriptures tell us six days you should labor. We are not laboring for ourselves. Yes, we do benefit. We do supply our needs for our family. But our work is to be, our work is to be a, unto the Lord. Our work is to be to change the culture for Jesus Christ, to train our children to be good workers, to work for our Lord, to change the culture for him. Work ethic matters. You can go anywhere right now. Help wanted, help wanted. Restaurants, we're closed Monday and Wednesday now. We can't get help. Went to a restaurant last week. Luckily, I got the right before lunch. Ordered one person. And the manager running around from uh, being the greeter, the seater, the server. At noon, one person. 20 people walk in. One person. She took care of them. She's a good waitress. Another eight people walked in from a tree trimming business, wanted something to eat. She just told them. It's going to be about a half hour before I even get to you. They left. She expected them to. Think of the advantage our children have if you teach them a work ethic, how they can change this culture. All they have to do is show up for work and they'll be put in positions of leadership. It's a golden opportunity when we see 
this slothfulness from the unbelievers walking around wanting a handout from everybody, thinking they deserve it. They deserve a kick in the pants. But just think any person who has the worth ethic that they're working on to God, that works a good thing. That's how Geneva was changed. The culture changed because businessmen hired Christians because they knew they would work and show up and continue to work even when they weren't being watched. And it changed the culture. That is how we take our culture back. By training the next generation that they're in a battle, they're in a fight, let the dogs howl, serve God, serve man by doing your job and contributing. And then the scriptures tells us to work so that you have something you can give to the poor. If you're the one walking around with your hands out, how are you going to give it to somebody else? Golden opportunity right now. Train up your children. They'll be shining lights in this dark culture. And make sure you tell them they're doing it for Jesus Christ, not themselves. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping and on the part of all, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. Saints, there is a time for sorrow. When people that we know perhaps are called somewhere else or leaving. But this demonstrates when a man of God loves the flock when he shares the truth, all the other saints love him, respect him, and are sad that they will not be around to be instructed by him. But again, this goes to passing the torch. Paul, from day one, was preparing these people to stand on their own, to be the church of Jesus Christ and Ephesus was the heart of that church at this time now. It's not about us and how big the church is or how many people come in here. It's how we are faithful to the end and we pass that on to the next generation. It's either through our discipleship, discipling our children, discipling the nation, And making believers understand and be assured that God's word is effective and prepared for all spheres of life. And whichever area God calls believers to be, they are to serve it and serve it as they're serving God and bringing the culture to recognize him. God owns this world and everything in it. He owns the culture. He has given it to man to develop that culture and Christian men to develop it for himself. That is our duty. That is our responsibility. And it's our responsibility to pass it on to our children, 
and our children's children. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, as we look at the life of Paul, we see a man who loved the church, but also recognized his own limitations, that he was human. Unfortunately, we have his writings to learn from. We have Luke's writing to learn from here concerning Paul. Give us the heart of Paul that he loves the church so much that he fights for it to the end, but also he equips it to carry on when he's gone in his absence. Teach us to be such a people in our families and in our church here. In Jesus' name, 